0: You're listening to a sermon preached at Cross and Crown in Melbourne. We believe that God speaks through the Bible and he calls us to preach the word and proclaim his gospel. We pray that as you listen, you will be strengthened to know, love and live for Jesus. Almighty God, thank you for your son who was shamed so that we might be saved, abandoned so that we might be accepted and died so that we might live, all for his glory. Amen. Well, a few weeks ago, I was reading an online interview with Dr. Norman Swan. I wonder if you know who he is. If you watched uh, the ABC News before, he's their national health reporter. And it wasn't long before that online interview uh, that Norman Swan himself was tested for COVID-19. And so this is what the interviewer asked him. When you had your much publicised test for COVID-19, were you scared? This is how he replies. No, I, I didn't think I had it because of my symptoms. And if I had it, I wasn't worried I was going to get terribly sick because I'm pretty fit and don't have any other complications. But when you say the word death, my body chills to the bone. You're scared of death? The interviewer asked him. Profoundly, I have a deep, core fear of dying. The interviewer presses on. What accounts for it? Is it not knowing what's on the other side? Oh, it's knowing there's nothing on the other side. And so the final question comes. So, if you were offered an option of living forever, you would take it? Answer. You bet. It's a strikingly honest interview, isn't it? And in some ways, I think Norman Swan is right. You yeah, know, if I knew that there's nothing on the other side, well, I'd also have a deep, core fear of dying. I mean, death would be the end, wouldn't it? It'd be the ultimate defeat, or as the Bible calls it, it would be the last enemy. You know, I want you to remember all the way back to Genesis chapter 2. We saw that death entered the world because we sinned against God. We rebelled against the God of life. We said we would rather die without him than live with him. Romans chapter 5 verse 12 says this: Just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, in this way death spread to all people because all sinned. Do you see, friends, if death is the final prognosis, then sin is our terminal condition. And if we want to change our prognosis, then we need to cure our condition, don't we? If we're going to deal with the death problem, well, someone needs to deal with the sin problem. And last week, the miracle cure arrived in the birth of Jesus. And Jesus comes with that one mission in two words, save Sinners. Save sinners. And if He saves us from our sin, well, He'll deliver us from death, won't He? If He cures our condition, He will change our prognosis. God's mission is to save us from sin, to deliver us from death, to deliver us, to free us in one sense from that deep, core fear of dying. And today, at the cross, we declare mission accomplished. Mission accomplished. This is the victory of our king. This is the center of his story. You know, this is the moment that Iron Man destroys Thanos. It's the moment that Harry defeats Voldemort. Or for those of you who were watching last night, it's the moment that Hiccup slays the dragon. But this is no fan fiction. This is no fantasy tale. No, this is nothing short of reality. This is our story. This is God's story. It's his story. It's history. This is the moment where Jesus crushes the forces of evil. He frees us from the bondage of sin. He delivers us from the clutches of death. He brings us home to God and he is crowned as conquering king. And yet, all of this takes place in the most unexpected of ways because Jesus is no ordinary king. You see, friends, the victory of God is achieved through the shame, the death, and the burial of our king. The shame, the death, and the burial of our king. And there are three sections today. You see, friends, Jesus' crucifixion as criminal is his coronation as king. Act 12 cross. Well, I want you to imagine for a moment, I want you to imagine a scene of a king being crowned. You know, based on the books you've read or the movies you've watched, just imagine, picture that scene with me for a moment. That the crowds gather as their king rides through the city and rides up to his palace. He's donned with armor and robed uh, with a robe of deep purple. As he ascends the throne, he is crowned with a golden crown. And he is given and handed a scepter with which he will rule his kingdom in power. And as he sits, all his subjects bow the knee and they cry, All hail the king. You know, if there's one word to describe that scene. It's glory. 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 Well, friends, the picture of Jesus' coronation couldn't be more different. You see, Jesus is on trial. He is being judged for insurrection, for claiming to be the king of Israel and inciting rebellion against the Roman Empire. And in the greatest miscarriage of justice, he is wrongly convicted and he is sentenced to the cruelest death imaginable. Crucifixion. Death on a cross. And if there's one word to describe this scene, well, it's not glory. It's shame. It's shame. Look with me at verse 28. In verse 28, the soldiers who should be cloaking their king in a robe of purple, they strip him naked and they chuck a red cloth on him. In verse 29, they don't give him a crown of gold. They twist together a crown of thorns. And he's not holding a powerful scepter. Is holding a pathetic stick. The king who should be covered in glory. No, instead he's covered in shame. And instead of falling to their knees in worship, these soldiers, they feign loyalty. They treat Jesus like a total joke. Hail, King of the Jews. They spit on him as if he's nothing more than a stray dog, a dirty mongrel. And instead of following him to his throne, they drag him to a cross. On that cross, they don't serve him the choicest or finest wine, no, they serve him sour wine, wine mixed with bitter gall. And instead of raising and hoisting a royal banner, what do they do? They nail a criminal placard. This is Jesus, King of the Jews. You know, friends, what's striking about this account, what's striking about Jesus' suffering isn't actually his pain. It's his shame. I mean, look at him, propped up, dressed up, slapped around and spat on, publicly belittled, humiliated and mocked. You know, friends, the truth is that many of us would rather suffer private pain than public shame, wouldn't we? Just imagine for a moment the young boy who's bullied at school. It's not the pain of being punched that hurts, believe me, I know, but the shame of being exposed, judged and rejected. And that fear of shame, that shame follows us throughout the rest of our lives, doesn't it? It could be at school or university, with our colleagues or with our friends. We all know that feeling. Our hands and our face begins to sweat. Our heart beats faster and our anxiety levels rise. We don't want to be looked down on. We don't want to feel ashamed. Well, friends, in this passage, our, our king, our king, the one we worship, he suffers the greatest shame imaginable. He's looked down on and rejected by all. In verses 39 to 44, the passersby insult him. The religious leaders mock him. And even the criminals, I mean the criminals, the scum of society taunt him as less than even them. Let me admit my sin for a moment. I'm sure some of you feel this as well. In my pride, I hate it when people think I'm weak, but I know I'm stronger than them. I hate it when people think I'm dumb, but I know I'm smarter than them. In my sin, you know what I think to myself? I think to myself, if only you knew. If only you knew. Just imagine what Jesus must feel as he hangs from the cross and hears literally everyone mock him as a fraud of a king. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. Well, I am. And I can. But I won't. I won't. It's so frustrating, isn't it? If I were Jesus, I'd be thinking, mate, if only you knew. You want me to come down from the cross? I'll come down from the cross and I'll show you who I really am. See who's laughing then. That's not what Jesus does. He chooses to stay on the cross. He chooses to bear the shame. We hate shame. Why in the world would he do that? Why in the world would anyone do that? You know, earlier this week, I was listening to a TEDx talk by someone called Monica Lewinsky. Now, for those of you who are old enough to remember, back in the 90s, uh, Monica Lewinsky was publicly exposed for having an affair with President Bill Clinton. Her TEDx talk is titled, The Price of Shame. And I want you to hear how she describes her experience of being exposed. This is what she says, quote, I was branded as a tramp, tart, whore, bimbo, and of course, that woman. I was seen by many, but actually known by few. In 1998, I lost my reputation and my dignity. I lost almost everything. And I almost lost my life. There are some of you who I'm sure will know that feeling all too well. That sense and that burden of being shamed to death. Why in the world would anyone embrace that? Why in the world would Jesus embrace it to be seen by many but known by none? Well, the answer, ironically, is right there in verse 42. You see, the religious leaders are mocking him. He saved others, but he cannot save himself. But friends, here's the truth. Jesus did not save himself so that he might save others. Why did he bear the shame? Jesus bore our shame so that we might be spared our shame. You know, so many of us are afraid to come before God, aren't we? So many of us feel ashamed of our actions, ashamed of our choices, ashamed of our past. We don't even want to think about it. We feel dirty, exposed and vulnerable as we stand before a holy God. And the truth is, we'd rather reject God before he has a chance to reject us. But we need to know this truth that Jesus bore our shame so that we might be spared our shame so that we can stand before God unashamed. We need to know that Jesus did not save himself so that he might save us. We need to know that Jesus' shame secures our salvation. Our friends, be in no doubt. Jesus could have come down from that cross. He could have come down and schooled them all. He could have showed them his glory. He could have put them all to shame. But if he did, he would not come as our saviour. He would come as our judge. If he did, we would have to bear our shame all by ourselves. No, the only way that Jesus saves us is by not saving himself. This is what uh, Leon Morris writes about uh, the religious leaders. I love this quote. They said they would have believed he was the son of God, had he come down from the cross. No, we believe he was the son of God because he stayed up. What kept Jesus on the cross was not the nails and it was not the beam of wood. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. Jesus, our king, suffers the greatest shame. And what looks like his ultimate defeat is actually his ultimate victory. Because Jesus was shamed so that we might be saved. Part two, the death of the king. I want you to remember for a moment that young boy who was bullied at school. Now, when that young boy is bullied and shamed, where do you think he runs? Where does he run? He runs to the safety of those who love him. And all of us, all of us do that, don't we? When we feel exposed and humiliated and ashamed, we run to those who know us, who love us. We run to those who won't judge us. We run to our family, our friends, our pet cat or dog, and for most children, they run to their parents. But imagine for a moment, What if that young boy runs home after being rejected at school, only now to be rejected at home? What if we were to be rejected by our colleagues, only to be rejected by our church? Rejected by our friends, only to be rejected by our family? We knock, but the door does not open. We call, but the phone is not answered. Friends, that's the rejection that Jesus now suffers as he is abandoned, not by everyone else, but by his very own Father. As he is abandoned by God the Father. In verse 45, Jesus cries out in the words of Psalm 22 in Aramaic Eli, Eli, Lema sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? the darkness that overshadows the whole land. It's a sign of God the Father turning his back on his son. He's closing the door. He's hanging up the phone. You see, at the cross, Jesus, yeah, he bears the Father's wrath so that we might escape it. In one sense, he suffers judgment by condemnation. But he also suffers judgment by deprivation. He loses the Father's love so that we might receive it. I should just think about that for a moment. The relationship between God the Father and God the Son is the source of all love in our world. It is love at its purest, at its sweetest, at its greatest. There is no relationship of love, anything like this in existence. And Jesus gives it all up so that we might take it up. He loses it so that we might gain it. Just imagine being rejected by everyone you know and then being rejected by the one person who loved you. Imagine the silence. Imagine the darkness. Imagine the loneliness. Imagine the emptiness. You see, friends, that abandonment by God is quite literally a living hell. This is what J.I. Packer writes in Knowing God. Quote, On the cross, Jesus lost all the good that he had before. All sense of his father's presence and love, all sense of physical, mental, and spiritual well-being, all enjoyment of God and of created things, all ease and solace of friendship were taken from him. And in their place was nothing but loneliness, pain, a killing sense of human malice and callousness and a horror of great spiritual darkness. You see, friends, the greatest pain that Jesus experienced was not the nails driven through his hands, but the love stripped from his heart. How great the pain of searing loss. The Father turns his face away. And with that, In verse 50, Jesus dies. And when you think about it, none of this makes any sense, does it? I mean, if Jesus is the king, and if this whole scene is supposed to be his victory, why in the world is he dead? Death isn't victory. Death isn't a success. Death is the ultimate defeat. Surely, if Jesus' mission was to save sinners, then... This has gotta be mission failure. But I want you to notice what happens next. You see, in verse 51, the curtain of the sanctuary was torn in two from top to bottom. Imagine this in the temple, there are different sections for different levels of access to God. I mean, the men of Israel were allowed to enter the courtyard. The, the priests were allowed to enter the holy place. And just once a year, the high priest was allowed to enter the Holy of Holies, the closest place to the presence of God. And each of these sections was separated by a curtain, a physical and spiritual barrier between God and us. But look at what happens when Jesus dies. The curtain is torn in two. That barrier that separated God from us is now torn down. You know, you might feel so far from God. You might feel like there's a large curtain, an impenetrable barrier that separates you from him. And as you think about your past, as you reflect on your baggage, you might feel so ashamed to come near this God. Maybe you grew up in church, but you walked away for quite a number of years. And you wonder, how could I ever come back? Maybe you feel so ashamed dirty and unclean, and you wonder, why Why would anyone, let alone God, accept me? You see, you might even have resigned yourself to being abandoned by God. But Jesus was abandoned so that you might be accepted. Jesus was abandoned so that you might be accepted. He's torn the curtain in two. He's opened up the way. God has opened the door. He's picked up the phone. You now, through Jesus, have free and direct access to God. The only question is, will you come? Will you come? Because if you do, you will find far more than just the acceptance of God. You will find a whole new life with him. I mean, look at verse 52. The tombs were also opened. That's the best line, isn't it? The tombs were also opened. And many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. Jesus was shamed so that we might be saved. He was abandoned so that we might be accepted. And he died so that we might live. That one phrase, the tombs were also opened, that's my favorite line in this entire passage because it tells me that death is defeated. In verse 53, the bodies of the saints rise when Jesus rises from the dead. But look, it's actually at Jesus' death that the tombs are opened. It's actually at Jesus' death that death itself dies. The other day I was looking at my Google calendar and I've got in there on annual repeat it's actually about three years ago uh, to the fortnight or so that my grandmother, my, my, my papa, died. And I, I, ha- I don't like to think about it, but, but when I do, I remember standing there at a funeral, looking at her body lying in the coffin. And there was a part of me that thought to myself, this is the last time I'm going to see her. Because once that coffin closes, it's not going to be opened again. There's something so definitive, so final about death, isn't there? I mean, if I wasn't a Christian, if I believed that death is the end, well, I'll tell you what, I'm with Norman Swan. I would have that deep core fear of dying. But when Jesus died, the tombs were also opened. The coffin is not sealed. The grave cannot contain us. And death is not the end of our story. You know, one day my my Popeye and all of God's people will rise. And once again, I will see her. Because death died in the death of Christ. Friends, that should give all of us a comfort and a hope when we will stare death in the face. And all of us will. If you're not a Christian, let me ask. Do you think that death is the end of your story? Do you think that death is the end of your story? Because I'll tell you what, to be totally blunt, if death is our inevitable, meaningless end, what meaning is there in our life? What meaning is there in our life other than the small existence that we can just squeeze out of the years that we have? No, we Christians have a deep hope grounded in history and reality. We have a confidence that death is not the end because Jesus died our death and gave us his life. He died so that we might live. Thirdly, briefly and finally, the burial of our king. In verses 57 to 66, it's as if Matthew wants us to realize that Jesus truly, really, physically died. Just because he's truly God doesn't mean he didn't really die. Now look at verse 58. Joseph of Arimathea asks for Jesus' physical body. In verse 59, he wraps that physical body in clean, fine linen. And in verse 60, he places that physical body into a physical tomb. Unless we think that Jesus might have somehow survived crucifixion and escaped. Now we read that a great stone boulder seals the tomb like a coffin never to be opened. The religious leaders, they're afraid that Jesus' disciples might come and steal his body and then concoct this grand conspiracy of the resurrection to fool the world. And and there are those people who will say that's actually what Christianity is today. They're not right. But look at what the religious leaders do. They ask Pilate to secure the tomb by placing guards all around it. So, So just imagine for a moment what Jesus' disciples must be feeling. Their king, their messiah, their so-called saviour is truly, really, physically dead. His body is sealed in a tomb behind an immovable boulder and it is being kept by a guard of soldiers. Jesus ain't going anywhere. Or so we think. Or so we think. You see, Matthew has set up the perfect conditions for the greatest prison break of all time. And next Sunday, we're going to see that Jesus' burial cannot stop his resurrection. But that's for next week. I want to end today by reflecting on some different responses to Jesus that we find in this passage. And as we look at each of them, I want you to ask yourself this question. How will you respond to Jesus today? How will you respond to Jesus today? If you're not a Christian, our first two examples are for you. Let me ask, will you be like the soldiers that we find in this passage? The soldiers who crucified him, mocked him and killed him. Please, don't be someone who ridicules and rejects King Jesus. Because now, today, you've heard who he really is. Please don't be like the soldiers. Or will you be like the passers-by who stop to take a look at Jesus but shake their heads and keep on walking? Please, don't do that. Don't keep on walking. Don't ignore the Lord Jesus Christ. Instead, why not be like the Roman centurion, that unlikely enemy of Jesus who looks at the cross and declares, truly, this man was the son of God. You see, if you're not sure where, where you stand with God, well, that's exactly what you need to do today. Be like that centurion. Turn to Jesus. Receive the salvation that he offers. Don't be like the soldiers. Don't be a passerby. Be like that soldier. Recognize the king. And for us believers, will we be like Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's sons? Notice, when all the male disciples cut and run, these women stood with Jesus to the very end. Will we be like them? Will we be unashamed? And will we be like Joseph of Arimathea, that rich man who was known to the world around him and did not consider his reputation of any value? He was a man who stepped forward before Pilate when everyone else stepped back and ran away. Will we be like him? Will we be unashamed of the God who bore our shame? You know, the mission of God is these two words save sinners and in his shame his death and his burial we can declare mission accomplished mission accomplished he was shamed so that we might be saved he was abandoned so that we might be accepted he died so that we might live he endured the cross he bore our shame So, brothers and sisters, may we not be ashamed of this gospel. May we not be ashamed of this Savior. May we be like the women and may we be like Joseph. And may we not be ashamed of our King. Acts 12, cross. Let me pray. Almighty God, thank you for your son. Who was shamed so that we might be saved, abandoned so that we might be accepted, and died so that we might live, all for his glory. Amen.